Governor Comey. Oh doing? my gosh. Six, a six foot eight governor. That's what America needs. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm uh, Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined by, by Dara Lind and Yoki Driesen, both frequent guests in the past. Glad to have you both with us. Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. And uh, obviously this week has been Infrastructure Week. It's uh, dominated <laughs> attention in Washington. Um, we did have a request from the Facebook group for some analysis of the air traffic control privatization uh, proposal, but we are not going to talk about that today because also... Former FBI Director James Comey came to the Senate Intelligence Committee yesterday and um, told his version of events. I mean, it was a striking moment in American politics, it seemed to me, completely separate from the legal issues, simply to have former FBI director, former deputy attorney general, uh, well-respected Republican-ish public figure standing there under oath saying, the president is a liar. The administration was defaming the FBI. And to me, that brought home the sort of gravity of the oddness of, of the, the situation that, that we find ourselves in, that, you know, we have a, a lot of investigatory questions, uh, but also just this kind of fundamental baseline reality that uh, leading figures in, in the government uh, are, are saying this like quite openly about the president of the United States. And the Republicans on the committee did not really have a substantive defense. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb and start this by saying I think that yesterday was good for the republic, uh, which is a phrase that I rarely use unironically, uh, but I think this deserves. If, if you think about the fact that we have this notion that what makes drama in American politics is the clash of ideas. That is a noble idea, but often in practice, whether it's on the floor of the Senate or, you know, on cable news, means that you just put two people who disagree next to each other and have them yell at each other, and that's what makes drama. To have something that was such an event, that was such an act of political theater, where the drama wasn't two people disagree about what is good for America and they're yelling at each other about it, but a bunch of people are trying to get down to the facts and trying to figure out, you know, who acted immorally and who should be held accountable for their actions in a public forum, made for riveting drama. And it was good to see that it, the business of politics is interesting, not just because people are out there slugging it out. The members of the committee were actually very good for the most part at not saying, well, I think the real problem here is blah, 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 which is usually a problem that you have in committee hearings, people taking up all their time and not asking any questions. For the most part, both sides of the committee had things that they wanted to get information from Comey on. They wanted to move the ball forward. And even, you know, despite the fact that few of the Republicans on the committee appeared to agree that President Trump did anything or much of anything wrong, the thrust of the hearing was, let's get down to the facts. Let's hear out a figure who has an important window into this scandal that's really consumed America and try to get a chronology of what happened and who was responsible. So I think that there's just the, the history element. I mean, it, it's always cliche usually to say this is a historical moment, but it is not cliche. The notion of a recently fired FBI director under oath calling a sitting president of the United States a liar repeatedly. And we, we should remember that Comey submitted a very well-written, I mean, as, as writers, I think we all agree, just the writing of it was really good, this kind of compelling, almost a personal story of all of his interaction with Donald Trump. Then he took the oath and basically said, you've all read that, let's get right to it. And his first answer, his literally first answer was, I was worried Donald Trump would lie. And what I took from that, which was very striking, was in some ways, a hearing like this would have been unimaginable with any other president. For all of Hillary Clinton's faults, the notion of her firing an FBI director and then being accused of directly lying by him, it's hard to imagine. With Obama, impossible to imagine. With George W. Bush, hard to imagine. Here, in some ways, it seemed inevitable from the moment Donald Trump won that there'd be a moment like this of somebody in position of power saying he is a liar. At the same time, it seemed, on the one hand, unimaginable with anybody else, inevitable with Donald Trump, and it's finally happened. You know, Dara, to your point, I was struck by the fact that the chairperson of the committee at the beginning and again at the end praised Comey's honesty because it was almost a sort of preemptive I know Donald Trump will say something dumb about you being dishonest. I'm going to plant the flag as a Republican, a rock-ribbed, red state Republican. I trust you. You are an honest man with integrity, preempting what became, as we later saw, the Donald Trump line of Comey lied, which basically means the president said 
a former FBI chief committed perjury, which is criminal. Let's be honest, Richard Burr was also defending Congress, right, as an institution. For the most part, Republicans haven't been willing to do that when Donald Trump has said things, you know, about the Freedom Caucus and tried to get involved in the HCA. He hasn't necessarily respected that Congress has a separate job. But for Richard Burr to say, it is our job as a congressional committee to get to the bottom of this, and you've helped us do that job, was also kind of not necessarily a brushback pitch, but a signal that if Donald Trump is going to go and impugn their process, they might actually hit back. Right. I, but I, I do think it's it's worth looking at, you know, what was the sort of lines of, of Republican argument that you heard from the senators? Because it, it was interesting. They didn't go in line with the sort of Trumpian attack on Comey, but they also didn't, you know, line up with, with the Democrats or really with what Comey was trying to say. Instead, they, they raised a bunch of points that seem a little bit sort of subsidiary or, or possibly irrelevant. I mean, I mean, one major theme was getting Comey to say uh, negative things about Loretta Lynch, um, which is interesting. And, you know, I mean, I think the history files are, are going to need to deal with that whole issue, but it's not really relevant. There's no, you know, two wrongs make a right, you know, defense of presidential misconduct. The other was a lot of sort of questioning of Comey of like, well, if this was so bad, why didn't you, you know, say something at the time. And and Comey, you know, handled that well, tried to have a, you know, a mix of sort of humility and, and you know, are you kidding me? But it was also a strange argument because I guess the implication was, well, maybe Comey didn't really think this stuff Trump did was bad at the time, but now he's mad because he got fired. Uh, and then the third was, I, I mean, I think James Lankford said this most directly, was like, well, this kind of hope stuff, that didn't seem too too aggressive to me. Which, you know, you could see, except for the fact that the elephant in the room of this whole line of questioning is that Comey got fired. Right? I mean, you could make the case. I mean, you can always sort of parse words that, well, exactly what, what Trump said about, I hope you can get rid of this Flynn thing, wasn't really a direct interference. If James Comey was still FBI director, right? If he had been up there saying, Trump said this thing, I took it to be inappropriate, I didn't do what he asked, and now the investigation's going along merrily, you'd say, well, okay, you know, maybe Trump, who knows, you know, he's, he's new to being president, things happen. But Comey got fired. And Republicans did not seem to me to have much to say about that subject. But it's it's pretty critical because we're going to have a new FBI director soon. And Trump's candidate, you know, he, he looks like a well-qualified guy. You see his resume, the, the whole deal. But from what we know about Trump's interactions with Comey, you have to ask, what is being solved? Like, what problem has Donald Trump solved by replacing James Comey with a different sort of George W. Bush-era high-ranking Justice Department official? And it seems from Trump's own narrative, what he is solving is getting someone who is willing to pledge personal loyalty to him, which to me seems obviously inappropriate. I think Senate Democrats will feel it's inappropriate, but Senate Republicans didn't seem to have anything to say on that subject. Yeah, and if I could take a step back, Matt, to something you said at the outset, the Russia piece was fascinating, and I think there were three parts of it that are all worth kind of taking a step back and, and looking at each one separately. One was Comey saying again and again, really explicitly and forcefully and kind of angrily, Russia interfered with our election. Russia tried to interfere, and they succeeded. He had a line about how Americans argue about who to vote for, but it's, it's an American decision. And here, his line was something along the lines of Russians are trying to say, this is how you should think, act, and vote. And so he hit that point again and again and again. He also raised and sort of hinted that there were things about the Russia probe yet to come, big ones. He avoided any questions about this very shady Russian bank that Jared Kushner has dealings with and said he had, that had to be in a closed session. He hinted there was more stuff about Jeff Sessions in Russia that had to go closed. It later leaked out that there appears to be another meeting Jeff Sessions had with the Russian ambassador that was undisclosed, which arguably was perjury in front of a Senate committee during his confirmation hearing. And then there was this sort of other question about Trump collusion. You know, he hit that again and again and again as a real possibility. And he hit again and again and again that Bob Mueller is looking into the president and he's looking into the president's aides. He had a line at the end that it was one of the last questions. I think it didn't get the attention it deserved. But at the end of this very impassioned monologue about the sanctity of American elections, he had this line at the end, the dagger of, if there are Americans who helped Russia do that, that's a very big deal. Yes, it is. That's what the closed session was entirely about. And that's what the Bob Mueller probe, which is just getting going, 
And regardless of who Trump put, puts in as head of the FBI, unless he fires Bob Mueller, that thing is just going to be a snowball. I think that it's worthwhile to kind of separate. There are really two things that Jim Comey is accusing President Trump of trying to interfere with the FBI on. One of them is the request to drop the investigation into Mike Flynn, which is where if you're going to make the argument that Donald Trump committed the federal crime of obstruction of justice, that's where the clearer case is. That's where the kind of, well, was it an ask or was it an I hope you or did you actually take it as a direction? That's where that becomes really relevant. And then there's the separate allegation that Trump was trying to pressure his way into how the FBI dealt with the Russia investigation, where the allegation isn't that Trump was directing them to investigate or not to investigate, but that he was really upset that even though the FBI was not currently looking at him as a person of interest, they hadn't publicly said that yet. You know, that that is what Trump said he fired Comey for. That's what Comey said. You know, Comey said, I, I trust the president, you know, didn't lie to Lester Holt uh, and that that's really what I was fired for. And that's where it becomes a little bit weird that everyone is so blasé about it because Donald Trump, it makes sense that Donald Trump doesn't care if the FBI rolls up anybody that he was associated with as long as he stays clean. And that's clearly, you know, at one point he even told Comey, you know, some of my satellites were involved. That's, you know, sure, we should get that out. But that's a problem for him as a as an executive. It is a problem for his administration. It is a problem for the way that he won the election. And the fact that not only Donald Trump, who is a known egoist, who like, of course, he would throw everyone under the bus, but the Republican Party, who, you know, represents not only him, but the rest of his administration, is taking this line that, sure, if other people who were employed in the White House are involved in this successful Republican presidential campaign committed crimes, that is all right as long as the person who is currently in the presidency didn't commit crimes. That seems like it's going to go badly for them. Yeah, it does seem like a weird standard. I mean, if you imagine a narrative emerging in which Susan Rice, David Axelrod, and Valerie Jarrett were all being rolled up in some connected criminal conspiracy, and the view was that, well, as long as Barack Obama was not personally directly implicated, I mean, that would still be like a really bad day. Right. I mean, Republicans would be really upset. Democrats would be like, how did we get these people in here? We would be wondering, um, why did you appoint all these crooks? You know, and the the move to the sort of direct insulation of Donald Trump personally is a is an odd one like this early in the game. What I thought, though, was was most sort of interesting and a little underplayed was that there was one line of questioning of Comey about you know, did the president express any interest in the, like, underlying investigation into Russian hacking and cyber attacks? And Comey was basically saying no, that he attended a briefing about it, but that in the course of these nine conversations that they had in which Trump brought up the Russian investigation several times, it was never because he wanted to know about the substance of the investigation. Whatever Trump's culpability or or lack thereof simply is a policy judgment, it is a little bit disturbing, right? One thing that we've seen since the U.S. election, uh, particularly from from the French election and, and other events around the world, is that, you know, the Russians regard this seemingly as a successful rollout of a strategic approach that they intend to keep using for whatever their own purposes are. It's, it's a little bit murky, but this is something they are going to keep doing and something that the American government and other Western governments are interested in trying to understand better. You know, what's the scope of it? What are their capabilities? Who is involved? How does this stuff work? What can we do? And Donald Trump doesn't want to know. He doesn't want to talk about it. He sees the whole subject as undermining his legitimacy. But there's a, I mean, Comey brought this up, but th- there's a very serious problem here, separate from from Trump. And you wrote a great, great piece, Yoki, about how, you know, there's a massive Russian success here. Yeah. And, and I think that the success is sort of twofold. One, if you're Putin and what you've wanted to do, basically, since you took the presidency, which you'll hold for life, obviously, is make America doubt itself and make America retreat from the world stage. There's no better example of both of those things than the Trump presidency in the first place and this hearing in the second. Donald Trump has shown himself willing to bend, lie, and break his past statements on almost anything, but he's consistently pulling the world, the U.S. back from leadership on almost any issue. Taking the U.S. out of the Paris Accords had very little practical impact, except the response of the rest of the world, including the Chinese, was, America, you no longer matter. We're now going to do our own thing. 
when Trump went to the NATO headquarters, his staff had prepared for him a speech in which he explicitly reaffirmed the thing NATO most wanted him to reaffirm, which is an attack on one is an attack on all, which existed solely to deter Russia. He had that text. We know the 27 words he was supposed to speak. And he, on his own, didn't speak them. Like, that's a remarkable thing. A president, given a script, every other word in it he kept to, but the one line that was most important, he skipped. So if, if you're Putin and you, one, want to have America seem less interesting and less important on the world stage, mission accomplished. Two, if you want Americans to doubt the integrity of their whole political system, also mission accomplished. If Trump had lost, if we take the counterfactual, Trump's people might have said, well, there was Russian meddling. The U.S. government talked about it too much. Barack Obama, by even mentioning the meddling, that cost us the White House. And then the 35 or 40 percent of the country who are with him, no matter what, would not accept Hillary. So almost independent of who won, Russia has succeeded in making us as a country doubt everything about what has made America arguably a special place for the last 50 years. And, and it's just profoundly depressing. You know, Matt, another point that you, you raised a moment ago, which I think is just worth talking about for a second, Barack Obama, I don't think he handled the Russian hacking uh, as strongly as he should have, as aggressively as he should have, or, or as transparently as he should have. But we do know that he communicated himself personally and through his aides to Moscow to basically say, back the fuck up. We're not going to accept this anymore. We're calling you on it. Stop. We know that Donald Trump not only has not had the FBI chief talking about it, He's never said that to Vladimir Putin. So if Russia is saying America is a success, we're going to keep hacking, the previous president called them on it, the current president isn't, hasn't, and won't. That is also remarkable. I think it's worth pointing out that everything Yochi said is true, even if and without going to the point of assuming that Putin has some dirt on Trump, that Putin is deliberately, you know, that Trump is in some way a puppet of the Putin administration. Um I think that it often can seem like there's going to be some smoking gun that comes out. There's going to be, you know, there, we're going to find out that the famous P-tape is real or there's going to be something else that makes it clear that Trump was being blackmailed the whole time. I I don't know whether anything like that is out there or not. I think that it's worth assuming that it's not to think about what we know for sure. Even if we know everything that happened, what we know is that Donald Trump, who even before he was a politician, had this very zero-sum view of world affairs, that if America was, if other countries were winning, America must be losing, and therefore other countries must lose for America to win, entered politics and was successful. And in other countries, you know, on the continent, Marine Le Pen and the National Front, other parties that have this view that to protect the interests of their countries requires fighting other countries or fighting international forces rather than leading on them also, you know, are gaining in power. And Putin's Russia has decided that that is a good thing for them. So this is all, the, the rise of these forces doesn't have to be suborned by or even driven by Russia to be a good thing that Putin's going to celebrate if they succeed. Right. But the the back off from the hacking is particularly remarkable. I mean, I think, as you say, I think, you know, you talk to people who are in the Obama administration, a lot of them will tell you that they feel that the decision-making was a little too soft on Russia, starting with, with Ukraine. You know, that the whole final two, three years of the Obama administration, uh, people in there were pushing for a harder line than ultimately the White House adopted. I think certainly in retrospect, almost all of them wish that the, the response to the Russian hacking and cyber attacks had been more aggressive. And what's amazing about the Trump administration is that Donald Trump is like the only person in America whose takeaway from the events of October and November 2016 was that the Obama administration was too harsh on the Russians, right? Like nobody else thinks that, including the Republicans who are backing Trump, you know, who are in this confusing situation where they spent eight years criticizing Obama for being basically not aggressive enough in, in their response to Putin. Then Trump comes in and he's like, he's trying to to give them back uh, the, these diplomatic facilities that, that the Obama administration sanctioned. He had some weird feelers out about making some kind of special deal with them on Syria. It's not clear that any of those initiatives are going to go anywhere because there's such an overwhelming consensus against it. Um, you know, in in the government, right? I mean, the, nobody in the military thinks this is a good idea. Nobody in the State Department thinks it's a good idea. But but Trump, out of whether it's something 
shady, or as as Dara says, it's just his sort of natural gut level instinct that like Putin was helpful to him, so he resents this idea that he should be mad about that. Um, it's a very, you know, just remarkable policy take. I mean, I don't expect normal voters to be, like, out in the streets angry and furious about the handling of of these, like, two properties that the Obama administration froze. But it's really bizarre and indefensible, it seems to me. And there's not been the, the sort of legalization of this inquiry leaves that kind of stuff off the table. He's the president. He, he's definitely allowed to make terrible foreign policy choices if he wants to. Uh, but in a lot of ways, to me, that's the sort of core issue here is like, you know, your job as president is is to lead the country. And something about what's going on in this nexus of Russia issues is preventing Trump from doing that in, in a responsible way. And this is where Comey comes back in. I want to give a, f- a quick five-point chronology. Point one, we now know that there was interest in the Trump administration in lifting sanctions on Russia the first week of the Trump presidency. You know, they didn't act on that at that time. Point two, Trump gets increasingly frustrated with Comey, as Comey has testified, that there's this kind of cloud over him because of the Trump investigation that he wants Comey to clear. Point three, he fires Comey and then tells Lester Holt that it was because the Russia thing was fake news. Point four, he tells Russian officials in a meeting in the Oval Office that Comey was a nut job. And now that he's been fired, the pressure is off him. And point five, the Trump administration gives these diplomatic facilities back. It certainly does look like they felt that that was something that they couldn't do. And then they fired Comey and they could do it. Well, actually, let let me stop there for one second, because uh, I like the chronology, but point five actually hasn't happened. They have not turned them over. They've said they might, but they haven't they haven't succeeded in doing it. Point four, I think, is in some ways essential to go back to your chronology. When Trump won, right, the conventional wisdom about Trump and Russia was tangibly, he's going to tangibly do things Russia wants. He's going to lift sanctions. He's going to say, you know, it's okay that you invaded parts of Ukraine, but there would be tangible policy changes. There are 5,000 U.S. troops going to Poland to try to be along the Polish border to say to Russia, like, you can't invade other countries in Eastern Europe. And the conventional wisdom was none of those things are going to happen, or in the case of the sanctions, they'll be lifted. That was wrong. Not only is it wrong, but Trump has made all of those things so toxic they can't happen. Lost in the flood of coverage this week is that the Senate is finishing up a new Russia sanctions bill, explicitly drafted in a way that it makes it harder for Trump to lift any Russian sanctions, including the new ones. So so think about that. That's a a Senate Republican-drafted bill that basically says, we don't trust our president to such a degree. We are drafting this bill, so he has to keep his short, orange-fingered hands off of it, which is really impressive to me. But you have, on one hand, this irony of the tangible things people thought would happen have not happened. But instead, Trump has been consumed, consumed by this Russia scandal, which shows every sign of snowballing. The Jeff Sessions piece of it is going to get bigger. He's testifying next week, and we'll get explicit questions of, did you perjure yourself? Did you lie? Jared Kushner is now pulled into it. You know, you made a point earlier, both you and Dara, about, and you were saying specifically, imagine if this were Valerie Jarrett, David Oxrod, et cetera, pulled in. If that all happened, Obama had other circles of people from whom he could have drawn right. people to fill those jobs. Donald Trump doesn't. He doesn't trust anybody. He loves his family. He loves Jared Kushner somewhat inexplicably. He loves Jeff Sessions. So if you're Obama, you at least have like a bench to pull from. If you're Trump and your top people all start getting picked off one by one by one, who runs the government? I mean, who is running the West Wing? Yeah, the, the Sessions piece of this totally blows my mind, obviously, as someone who has covered the issues on which Sessions was, you know, a voice of one in the Senate who now somehow is running large swaths of the federal government. He's one of the few people in the Trump administration who has lots of government experience, which means that he's been running his, you know, his department very competently. He's been working very aggressively to stiffen sentences on low-level drug offenses and immigration offenses and to, you know, direct attention toward those and away from white-collar crime. Most of the Trump administration isn't really functioning yet. Sessions' Department of Justice is functioning at a much higher level than most, and it's really the best expression of the issues that Trump ran on, of Trumpism, of this kind of worldview of America as something that has been polluted by crime and disorder that needs to be, you know, purified, that we have. So if it turns out to be the case that Sessions has to go, that is a massive defeat both for the Trump administration as a government that can do things and for Trumpism as a governing philosophy. Yeah, and and I do think, I mean, it is worth dwelling on on Sessions in that regard, because if not for the fact that it looks like he's maybe going to be in legal jeopardy, I think people would be saying that what Trump needs to do to right the ship here is possibly actually bring Sessions 
further into power, that maybe Jeff Sessions should be Donald Trump's chief of staff, that Jeff Sessions is not a good politician-type figure the way Donald Trump is, but that Jeff Sessions believes in a Trumpy ideology in a way that Rance Priebus doesn't, and that Jeff Sessions knows a lot about politics and government in a way that, you know, Jared Kushner and even Steve Bannon really don't, and that you don't, you don't need to like it, but it's a professional Justice Department that does what it's supposed to do, puts out statements. But he appears to me to be in very serious trouble. I mean, we saw um, there was a there was a line of questioning from it was Ron Wyden, right? Who did he did this is like if you're not an intelligence committee hearing junkie this is like Ron Wyden's signature move is to have the witness come up and ask a question that seems a little out of left field or a little banal and then the witness says well I can't talk about that in an open session and then all the reporters go to their notes and they're like aha <laughs> because it's you know it's weird because you can't you can't ask the witness classified questions, but you can ask things that you know he's got to sort of drop that bomb. Then they went into the closed session, and the leak that came out of there was that there was a third meeting between Sessions and Ambassador Kislyak. And the significance of that, it seems to me, is that we already had Sessions testifying before Congress, and he said there had been no meetings. Then it came out that there, in fact, had been meetings. And so, you know, if you don't like Jeff Sessions, you jump up and you say, lying to Congress, perjury. Um, But I do think the normal, generous interpretation of that is, look, people misspeak. He said something. It wasn't true. He got called on it. He corrected it. He recused himself from the investigation. It's not a great look for Sessions, but it's also not a criminal look. But if in the process of correcting your previous false testimony to Congress, you don't fully correct it, that really casts the original testimony in a much more insidious light, right? I mean, he has to have, once that was a news story and he was like in the crosshairs, right? You got to go to your staff, to anybody you know, and say, we need to look at this rigorously. We need a full accounting. And even if the only thing is we were at a cocktail reception that Kislyak was at after a speech at the Mayflower, you got to put that in. And if he didn't, it really makes him look bad. And that, in turn, you know, it's it's a serious problem for Trump. He is a guy who was both a major player in the campaign and is a major substantive figure in the administration. And, And that, it seemed to me, we may... That was not the headline that anybody went with out of this, but depending on what happens over the next few weeks, I think we may see that as the, the kind of the biggest news that broke. Well, there's I mean, also this question of the FBI's trust in Sessions, because if they knew that there was a subsequent meeting before Sessions recused himself, which is what Comey implied, that they had this other information that made them think he was going to recuse, and then he recused himself and didn't divulge that information and, in fact, denied that that information existed. Now you have the FBI who, yes, Sessions has recused himself from the Russia investigation, but he's still their boss's boss, you know, in everything else. Knowing that the attorney general has misled the American public, that seems like it could be an organizational problem for the next year, several years. I mean, it's also the case that he didn't say this in quite the same way as he did about Trump. He clearly believes Jeff Sessions is a liar that he cannot trust, that he's a man of zero integrity. I mean, that came through pretty loud and clear in his public testimony. It certainly came clear in the closed-door testimony, and you could tell that it resonated because it leaked instantaneously. Like, the doors to that meeting opened, out came the senators, and within minutes, you were seeing on Twitter, what we know is that there was this undisclosed third meeting. Matt, I completely agree. I mean, it's not hard to check your own calendar as a senator where your time is blocked out by 10 or 15-minute blocks and figure out, like, huh, there was this third block where I talked to the Russian. Maybe I should mention that. You know, next week's hearing with Sessions isn't going to be this. It's not going to be like another kind of Watergate level. All of Washington stops to watch it. But it is substantively a really big deal. It's also in the weird criminology where you know, the, the Times, report with its amazing White House reporters, reports this person is up, this person is down, Bannon's on his way out, Bannon's not on his way out, Kushner's loved, Kushner's not loved. There was a story, I think it was last week or the week before, that got a little bit of attention, overshadowed completely again by Comey, that Trump is angry at Jeff Sessions. Right. I mean, the single word of the Trump era is fury. Like every story is Trump is furious about this, he's furious about that, but that he was and remains angry at Jeff Sessions for the recusal. So the thing Jeff Sessions did that arguably is the most ethical thing he has done so far as attorney general, which even if it was belated and perfect, not complete, but taking the right step of saying I shouldn't be involved in this and recusing, 
is specifically the thing that Donald Trump is angriest about and was and just keeps having this rage at Jeff Sessions and feeling of if Sessions hadn't recused himself, if he had not done this ethical thing, Russia would have gone away. And I find that fascinating, that what well, he may want to get rid of Jeff Sessions for the thing that the rest of Washington, both parties, feels is the high point of Jeff Sessions as I mean, attorney general. The, the, re- the reason that this came out is because Trump was openly mad and blaming the Justice Department for forcing him to redraft the travel ban, which is the other thing that the administration has done that was objectively more legal, more careful the second time around than it was the first time. He clearly was upset that anyone could impugn the constitutionality of him issuing this thing that, you know, courts didn't need a lot of time to decide was unconstitutional in a lot of ways. So this is where the problem that Comey identified in his testimony of Donald Trump not understanding that there is a certain independence of the rule of law that needs to be respected in practice, if not in his own head, becomes not just a problem with Jim Comey, but a problem that Donald Trump has, even with people he's loyal to and close to, that he does not allow them to assert their prerogative as government figures who do not do the, follow the president's whim. And that's that's a big, big problem. I cannot overstate how big a problem that so, is. So I think in terms of this Sessions thing, there's there's an old passage. It's from, from The Art of the Deal 30 years ago, but I think sheds a lot of light on this. And Trump is writing about why he loves Roy Cohn so much. And he says, just compare that with all the hundreds of quote-unquote respectable guys who make careers out of boasting about their uncompromising integrity but have absolutely no loyalty. They only care about what's best for them and don't think twice about stabbing a friend in the back if the friend becomes a problem. What I liked most about Roy Cohn was that he would do just the opposite. And so loyalty is great. I think everybody has a sense that like loyalty is good, that stabbing your friend in the back is bad. What's fascinating about that is that he specifically calls out respectable people with uncompromising integrity (laughs) as like what he has in mind as the opposite of a loyal person, right? And and that's exactly to the point of this Sessions thing, that the way Trump understands the world, to do something like recuse yourself from the Russia investigation, if you're Jeff Sessions, is just a kind of selfishness, right? That like what Jeff Sessions was supposed to do there was take the hit for Donald Trump and have everybody say, you know, I disagreed with Jeff Sessions about immigration, but I always respected his honesty and upfrontness about it. Because I think, like, a lot of actually, like, immigration people would have said that, that, like, a lot of Republicans seem slippery and opportunistic on this issue. But Jeff Sessions, you know, he takes his lumps. He's been out in the wilderness. And to Trump, like, that's the whole problem, that, like, people who work for Trump ought to be willing to ruin their reputation in the public for the sake of Donald Trump. And that is a like a really high bar to meet. It's I think it's it's hard to find people who, who meet that. You see them. I mean, Sarah Huckabee Sanders and, and others. But they're sort of jokes. I mean, it's going to be really challenging to staff an administration with people who meet that standard of kind of debasement because people, you know, get into public life you know, for a mix of good and bad reasons, but something that tends to hold together the good and the bad reasons is that you like to see, you know, stories written about you and how you're, like, doing big, important work. And and Trump's desire to have people who, you know, don't want to be perceived by the public as having integrity is odd and I think going to be very toxic. Cooking is fun. Uh, shopping is not as fun. And thinking of like new recipes that you want to cook and finding the right ingredients and the right portions, all that stuff is, is kind of tedious. Uh, so Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. And what they're about is taking the sort of tedious aspects off of it so that you can get good, healthy food to eat in your own home, have the joy of cooking without the sort of the tedium of, of shopping and thinking. Um, it's really great ingredients. Their seafood is sourced sustainable under standards they developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. Uh, That means you're not contributing to overfishing. Uh, Their beef, chicken, and pork come from responsibly raised animals. Produce comes from farms that practice regenerative farming. Uh, It can be delivered to 99% of the continental United States and 99.5% of food deserts. Uh, Because they ship the exact amount of each ingredient required,
required for a recipe. They're, they're reducing food waste. Um, cooking together, they believe it, it builds strong family bonds. Research shows that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times as often. And it's affordable. Uh, for less than $10 per person, you're getting a delicious meal. So it's, it's way, way cheaper than eating out. It's much more convenient and more efficient than sort of conventional shopping. So they wanted me to tell you about some new stuff they've got coming out. They've got a warm smoked trout and asparagus salad with fingerling potatoes and garlic croutons, spiced zucchini enchiladas with a creamy lime and tomato rice, elote-style vegetable tostadas with summer squash, poblano peppers, and cilantro rice. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, peach honey-glazed chicken with mashed sweet potatoes, collard greens, and Thai basils. It's great fun. If you haven't heard about Blue Apron, basically what happens is you come sign up, they ship a box to your house, it's got the exact portions and directions you need to cook some great meals. Uh, it's very flexible. You can customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. They've got a few different delivery options, so you can choose what sort of suits you, what suits your family, how many people you're cooking for, how often you want to cook. Uh, you can cook the stuff in, in 40 minutes or less in any given night. Uh, it's fresh ingredients, ready to cook. Um, it, it's really cool. Um, so to check it out, you can go and get three free meals with free shipping. If you go to blueapron.com slash weeds, uh, you're going to love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash weeds. It's Blue Apron, a better way to cook. I think that's why he's had so much trouble filling jobs that he has leaked out so frequently he wants to see filled by different people, right? Like he, he came out this week that he reached out to a guy that I know well and had covered for years, Jeff Morrell, who was the spokesman for Bob Gates when Bob right. Gates ran the Pentagon, who is the most profane person I've ever met. I mean, any variant of a MF word or F word he has used repeatedly, but as a man of integrity. If you were as a reporter were close to a story, he would try to help you get it right. And if you were totally off, he would try to give you a steer that it was wrong. I mean, he was a very decent man and a professional. There is no way he's going to join this White House. I mean, Trump, you know, Matt, I think you nailed that 100%. Trump also wants people who are not possibly going to rival him in attention. Right. You know, when the Comey attack by Trump leaked out of what he said to the Russians in the Oval Office, it was he's crazy and a nut job, weird coming from Donald Trump, and he's a showboat. Even weirder coming from Donald Trump, but it's revealing in the same way that the Roy Cohn quote is revealing. He wants people who will debase themselves and to do it at a level that doesn't in any way overshadow him. He wants to have Sheshnitz take a hit and to do it low level. He wants Jim Comey to take a hit and do it at a lower level, where Trump is kind of uber alice, both in the policy sense, but also in public perception sense. And there's an interesting element to all of this that, you know, typically if you serve in a White House and then you leave, it's pretty good. Right. You get a lot of lucrative jobs. You become a talking head on TV. Life is pretty good. You, you kill yourself for those number of years of 18-hour days, but the end of it is this pot of gold. It's hard to imagine anybody from this Trump White House having that pot of gold. I mean, which, if you think about the way corporate firms lined up to hire Obama comp staffers, which of them, what company is going to line up to hire Sean Spicer right. or Sarah Huckabee Sanders or Mike Dubke or on, on, on? And so if you have that job and you're getting embarrassed by your boss, you become a laughingstock on national television and you can't get a good job after, why? Why keep it? I think that might be a little optimistic because we know for a fact that CNN has made affirmative action effort to hire Trump defenders, that other major media outlets have felt that because this man is in the White House, people who think that he's doing good things must be a viewpoint that is worth representing in the public debate. And I think that that kind of gets to the, regardless of how dysfunctional it seems that this White House is and how mockable all of its figures are, there's a very high floor of power that someone who is the president of the United States has. And that means that they are guaranteed a certain platform in public debate. And it means that they have a lot of ability to do what they want in policy. And I, I just kind of think that it's important to recognize that the downward spiral of the Trump administration is not inevitable. And this is still, for as impotent as he seems right now, someone who has a great deal of power. I mean, I, th I think that's true, but it's worth drawing a, a distinction, right? I mean, there's a certain kind of... B or C list person who benefits from going in the Trump administration precisely because you can come out, you can be a CNN pundit, you could be a, a Fox News pundit, something like that. But there's also a, as you say, Jeff Morrell, right? I mean, there's people who had spokesmaning jobs in George W. Bush's administration and who people think did a good job. Those are the kind of people who normally would be the candidates for big White House jobs, right? He was a, a very important second-tier spokesman. Now maybe you'll be White House press secretary. And those people do not benefit from coming in at the Trump administration because 
the kind of CNN output, that's that's itself a second-tier way of cashing out, so to speak. You know, I mean, we look at, like, Jay Carney, right, who moved from, from journalism, which we're in, to White House press secretarying, to now running corporate communications for Amazon, right? That's like, that's like career rocket ship. Um, and you're not going to get that by going to work for Donald Trump and saying ridiculous things. Because if what you're known for is going on television and saying ridiculous things, I mean, we had, it was, it was uh, Sarah Huckabee um, came out and she had to say, well, the president's not a liar. But like, the president is a liar. I mean, everybody knows he's a liar. I mean, you can like him. They will like, put out in the newspaper, oh, one thing we do here is we lie all the time. And, and we really like it. It's funny, because then the things we lied about get printed up. She could come on as a as a pundit, as a spokesperson, but nobody who has that public perception is going to be like the face of a major multinational company or taken seriously as a as a communicator in the way that Bush administration people were, Obama administration people were. And in general, if you're trying to hire sort of the best people, uh, that's what you get. I do think there's a question of, you know, how much does it matter, right? I mean, can Trump sort of pull himself out of this tailspin, even with a bunch of second-rate people around. Um, you know, maybe. He, he won the election, after all. Right. I mean, this is this is where the Sessions thing becomes, again, relevant, right? Like, if someone like Jim Mattis, who has been taking a very strong-handed defense in ways, you know, that have been controversial, but, like, clearly appears to be not only running competently, but someone that Trump still trusts, if he gets sucked in, that's another swath of government that Trump is no longer running competently. If Sessions gets sucked in, then like the domestic law enforcement is something that's no longer getting run competently. I think that the Trump presidency could probably succeed on its own reality show fumes for several years without getting taken down. The question right now is, does this become a Trump administration problem and make an already relatively dysfunctional federal government even less capable of putting any agenda into American life. I think it's also worth noting that the word administration may not actually be the right word to describe whatever Trump is. A colleague of ours is working on a list of important national security jobs that remain open. There are a lot of them, ranging from (laughs) head of the FBI, head of TSA, head of ICE. So even the things that Trump nominally cares about the most, if it's being tough on the world stage, if it's being tough towards immigrants, he hasn't even filled those jobs. State Department, virtually of the 103 Political jobs, I think four have been filled. So even if we just figure, try to talk about are they B-level, C-level, D-level talent, there's just not many of them to begin with. And that kind of works if you're running your family business, kind of works even if you're running a campaign. It most definitely does not work if you're trying to run a government. And at some point, even if Trump pulls himself out of the tailspin of this, even if at some point the Russia scandals disappear, if we give Trump like every possible domino falls in the best way possible, you still have an empty government, a hollow government. And when you talk to people, especially who are sort of foreign diplomats, people who look at the U.S. from abroad, who are used to dealing with the U.S. government professionally from either party, that's what throws them the most. It isn't the Russia scandal. It's where is your government? How do you have no one for us to talk to? How do you have nobody, nobody running key departments? And that's remarkable. That can't be talked about enough, that there's a hollow federal government overseen by you know, an eccentric, inexperienced, dishonest, lying president. A thing that links this, this back is the sort of novel legal theory that, that Mark Kasowitz, the, the president's attorney, advanced yesterday in his response to Comey's testimony in which he made the argument that Comey had violated some kind of privilege by writing this memo about his interactions with Trump and then leaking it to the press. And as a sort of media strategy, I feel like this has has worked. By describing what Comey did as leaking and sort of conflating that with the leaking of classified information, which Comey, as a FBI guy, he's very much against leaking of classified information, they've kind of put a little smokescreen around this. Kasowitz is also an attorney. They're out in the press today saying they may file a legal complaint against Comey. And there's simply no privilege that that works like this at all. Uh, executive privilege is a, is a real legal concept in, in the United States. And it refers to the idea that the executive branch can try to prevent itself from being compelled to divulge information about its internal deliberations. But there's never been a legal standard that says people can't discuss their conversations with the president, with the public. There are a million memoirs, right? And Bob Gates wrote a me- Everybody who's like served in the cabinet in an interesting way goes and writes a book 
Um, and in the book, there's always something where it's like, then I was in the Oval Office and the president said to me, and, you know, it is what it is, right? Like, that's that's life. Um, Barack Obama, uh, I was once in a room with him and we were uh, talking about historically Black colleges and universities. And he had a a line that he was saying about their value and importance, but it kind of seemed to me from the way he was raising his eyebrow, like he was trying to signal to the people in the room that he didn't quite believe that. That's that's legal. I can say that. There's no, there's no privilege ar- around this stuff. And it creates an environment in which, like, who wants to do these jobs when the president of the United States does not seem to understand on any level or care, like, what it means to hold these jobs, that it is not the same to be the personal employee of a wealthy individual and to have a government appointment that was given to you by that individual. I mean, he is the president. He can choose who he wants to nominate as deputy secretary of state. But if you have that job, you are an officer of the American government with an oath to the Constitution. You're not Donald Trump's employee. You don't have a non-disclosure agreement. And they don't seem to recognize that, like, on any level. This is also, for the record, a super risky legal strategy for them to be pursuing. I mean, I'm not the first person in America to point this out. But if Trump's response to the Comey testimony is, A, he did things by testifying that were illegal, B, he perjured himself— When someone makes those claims, the reasonable response you would expect from Congress is, great, come tell us about that. Come swear that you will tell the truth on the Bible and then sit down and tell us the truth where this other person has told us lies. No one thinks that's a good idea for Donald Trump because Donald Trump lies all the time. And there's a reason that for all of these threatened lawsuits, they never actually file lawsuits because filing lawsuits would require him to be deposed. So... They are coming out swinging hard. And if Richard Burr decides to call their bluff and say, you've just accused me of running an illegal committee hearing, please come tell me why what I did was wrong and swear yourself to threat of perjury before you do it. That doesn't seem like the outcome that the Trump administration really wants. And yet it's the it's the outcome they're inviting. There are a couple moments yesterday where you could tell Jim Comey, who I thought did an amazing job just of keeping his composure the whole time and sort of you know, the occasional stumble, but, you know, Matt, you talked about this a little bit earlier. He kind of mixed folksiness with self-deprecation, but was very firm when he had to be and very detailed when he had to be. There were two points about his testimony that cannot, again, can't be overstated enough. One, memos taken contemporaneously by FBI agents are legal documents that can be, have and can be used and cited in court cases. So these aren't just memos that he wrote and happens to file away for his, for his future autobiography. If this does go to court in any way, he already has turned them over to Bob Mueller those are considered legally valuable documents. So in the same way executive privileges imagined and fabricated, memos written by an FBI chief are not. They're tangible and they're, they're usable legally. But also Trump, it was like meta-lying. It was lying about lies. So when he said, I have tapes that will show that Comey is misrepresenting it, one, Comey probably wasn't. Two, he doesn't have tapes. Clearly he doesn't have tapes. And one of the moments where you saw Comey's total contempt for Donald Trump shine through was that great line, which you can now literally buy on T-shirts of, Lordy, I hope there are tapes. Because he knows, he knows that if there's a tape that's out there, it will bolster him and not bolster Trump. So if you're Trump— But what if there are tapes? (laughs) If there are, you know, you've—Matt, a great question. Those will at some point either leak or wind up with Bob Mueller or wind up on Capitol Hill. Right. And in any of those situations, Donald Trump loses. I mean, Dara, I think your point's exactly right. If if you're Donald Trump and you're sort of inviting scrutiny of someone else's honesty, someone will invite scrutiny of your honesty with tangible questions of, okay, where are the tapes? Okay, we have memos from him. Where are your memos? Okay. You say there wasn't a phone call, but there's a record of a phone call. You say you didn't divulge classified information about Israeli intelligence on ISIS, but you did. You don't want to be having your, your honesty scrutinized if you're any president. And especially, especially if you have to do the Bill Clinton-esque, I had no sexual relations with that woman, the Richard Nixon, I'm not a crook, instead with the I'm not a liar. You are a liar. I mean, I, I think a final thought on this is, is what, what you're saying, it it underscores how high the stakes for Trump in the coming midterms are. I mean, midterm elections are always important for, for legislative agendas, so on and so forth. But he's under investigation now by Bob Mueller. And they are running, as far as we can tell, a sort of disciplined, professional, criminal-type investigation in which you work, you know, relatively carefully, relatively quietly on kind of building your case about legally relevant things. 
In Congress, Trump is being protected by Republican majorities that, to the greatest extent possible, want to talk about other things than this. If he was facing a Democratic House, you would have, you know, an oversight committee, which does what opposition oversight committees do, which is very different from what federal prosecutors do. And that's just throw out subpoenas like press releases anytime you have something, you know, entertaining to do. And that's where you would get into these like, well, show us the tapes, you know, kind of stuff. Like just like right away, bang, 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 bang. Because the committees, like they're not really trying to prove cases. They're not building a point. They're really out there to humiliate the executive branch. And Trump is He's behaving very recklessly. I mean, he is lucky in a sense that Jason Chaffetz and Trey Gowdy show no interest in pursuing that kind of investigation, but he can't necessarily count on them always being in there. And he's thrown out so many little things that somebody could hook into, which if you hand out some subpoenas, it's like, okay, where's the tapes? And then the White House is like, haha, there are no tapes. That's not like legally interesting if you're trying to build an actual prosecutorial case. But it's politically fascinating, right? Like, you got to come up there in your submissions to Congress, say like, no, the president was just lying for no reason. Like, that's not that's not a good look. And he's going to be, you know, faced with that a lot if Republicans uh, can't maintain their sort of majority on, on the House of Representatives. Right now, everything is being shunted toward Mueller, and, and we don't know, right? It's quiet. He is... Um, the prosecutor that I think people would be hoping for, you know, extremely well-qualified, extremely competent, but also not a political person. So we're not seeing exactly what's going on there. Maybe we will someday, maybe we won't. It's going to depend what he finds. But if he gets enmeshed in the kind of political investigations that we've seen, you know, Hillary Clinton got caught up in, Bill Clinton, uh, some other figures in the Obama administration, you know, he's going to be in for a, a world of hurt here, as far as I can tell. There are very few things that the DOJ and the FBI take more seriously than being lied to. I mean, this is something that they go nuts about. I had a friend once who worked at the FBI who said, you know, if you ever find yourself for any reason talking to an FBI agent, whatever you do, do not lie about something, even if it's my shoe is untied when your shoe is tied, because they go nuts over that. And you're 100% right. I mean, Donald Trump has put out publicly. So, you you know, I agree with that on the public point. But then privately, Mike Flynn lied to FBI agents. I don't think there's much doubt about that. We don't know what Jared Kushner will say. We don't know what Jeff Sessions will say if they're deposed by the FBI. They may also lie. You would assume Jeff Sessions would be careful enough not to. You'd assume Jared Kushner would be careful not to, but they might. And if you start lying to the FBI, that becomes, as you say, a whole world of hurt because they take that so seriously. All right. All right. Thanks, uh, Darren Yoki. Uh, thanks to everyone uh, out there out there listening. We will be uh, back next week with more Weeds. Uh, if you want to tide yourself over, check out the, uh, the Weeds Facebook group. Uh, lots of great discussion out there. Uh, thanks to our producer, Peter Leonard, and we will see you next week. Yeah.